Zechariah 13. One more Wednesday to go and we finish Zechariah. And then you get a couple weeks break from me because I'm going to take a vacation. And then when we come back from vacation, we have 10 weeks left through the end of June before we take our month of July off. And those 10 weeks, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke at what it is to follow Jesus as a disciple. I'm, going to, I'm picking out my 10 favorite passages out of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be exploring those on Wednesday night uh, when I get back. So next week, I'll be here, then I'll be gone for two Wednesdays and two Sundays, obviously, and then we'll be back uh, towards the end of, of April. Looking forward to picking it back up. But I've enjoyed our time in Zechariah. And tonight, once again, the prophet is going to prophesy, if you will, and teach God's people about God. There is no greater thing that we could teach. There is no greater thing that we could learn. There's no greater one that we could sing about or sing to than God. There is no greater one that we could come to some understanding of and knowledge of than God Himself. His, the knowledge of Him, who He is, how He operates, what, what He's doing is, is key to us navigating life successfully on earth before we even get to glory. And uh, so that's what Zechariah wants to talk to us about. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight is some highlights about God and who He is. You remember, though, from last week, we said, what a difference a day makes. And we're in these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, where Zechariah now is looking way ahead into the future to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord uh, is, a, is a time period that begins with the rapture of the church and, and you know, ends, if you will, uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom before God destroys this heaven and earth and then creates a new heaven and earth, which is the eternal state. In fact, in chapter 14, verse 1, Zechariah says, A day the Lord is about to come. And God now in Zechariah 12, 13 to 14 is turning his attention back to the nation of Israel to what will be their destiny in the future as his people. And we saw last week where God said, I will protect you during the great tribulation that you're going to go through. The Old Testament calls it a time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, there's other titles for it as well. Days of distress. And then God says, not only will I protect you, but I will pour out my spirit upon you in a special way in the last days so that you will come to acknowledge me and regard me and pay attention to me and come to understand that the one that you crucified was your Messiah. Then beginning or at the end last week, we went into chapter 13 and we saw this. In that day, there will also be a fountain opened up for the dynasty of David and the people of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God is going to open up a fountain. And in the original language, it's opened up permanently. It is not only a source of cleansing. 
It is not only that, it is a source of our very life. And not only for the Jew, but for us as well. We're going to see this. And I want to take time to just sort of set up this chapter by looking at some verses. So I hope yeah, if you have your Bibles, get your fingers nimble there. We're going to be looking at some verses. Because I want you first to see tonight that God is a God of forgiveness. He's a God of that not only forgives, but then He cleanses from all the impurities and defilement of sin in our life. That's why He opens up this fountain. But the fountain is even more than symbolic of His forgiveness and of His cleansing. This fountain is to forever be now, from here on out, a source of life. It is symbolic of the life that comes from God. And once God opens it up, At the end of the tribulation period, it will be there even through the entire thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So it will be something that you and I, during that millennial reign, can even partake of as well. Because we are reminded through this water source that God is always, even in that state, to be our source of life, our source of refreshment, our source of nourishment, our source of fulfillment and satisfaction. So just go with me through a couple of these verses that remind us that God, first of all, is our source of life. He is the fountain of living water. I want to first, let's just stay in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 8. Moreover, on that day, Living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It will happen both in summer and in winter. Then if you'll go all the way back to the book of Revelation, to the very last book, to the very last chapter of the Bible, to the first verse of Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, water as clear as crystal, pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 22, verse 1. So you have here this whole concept of this fountain and the pouring out of water. Now, go back with me to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, to Jeremiah chapter 2. I want you to see here that God calls Himself the fountain of living water. He calls himself that. And so that's why this fountain will be simply symbolic of who he is. It's a visible, in a sense, manifestation or representation of God himself. If I can go all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Here it is. I, I want to look at verse 13. God says through the prophet Jeremiah to his people, do so because my people have committed a double wrong. The two wrongs is, first of all, they have rejected me. And notice what God's title is for himself here. He says, the fountain of life-giving water. They have rejected me. And who am I? I am the fountain of life-giving water. Then God says the second wrong is they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns which cannot even hold water. In other words, God is saying, when you reject me, and I'm the only one that can truly fulfill and satisfy and nourish and refresh you, 
then you end up as a human being trying to create that source or find that source from something or someone else. And God says every time a human being does that, they obviously come to the same conclusion that the Jews did. It doesn't work. Everything that we try to create to satisfy and fulfill us, other than God, never works. It never does satisfy the deepest longing of our heart and of our soul. So I wanted to start out here because then I want to go back now to some verses we've already looked at in our study of the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn with me now to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And look at verse 14, where Jesus here is talking to the woman of Samaria and says to her, but whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. And then if you go over to chapter 7 of John's Gospel, look at verse 37. John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the Scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. And of course, he said this about the Spirit. You, you get the fact then, and you can go back to Zechariah 13 because we'll be there now for a while. You get the idea that this is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. That God is picturing Himself as this literally life-giving fountain or fountain of living water, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And God is saying to His people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't try to find your nourishment, your refreshment, your satisfaction, your fulfillment in anything or anyone else but me. I am that fountain for you. And for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, as we've already talked about in our study of the Holy Spirit, God, in a sense, places that fountain literally within us through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as Jesus said, we have that fountain literally bubbling up inside of us all the time. How sad it is then that as Christians, we can feel dry, uh, we can feel unnourished, not refreshed, not satisfied, and not fulfilled, even though God Himself, the very fountain of living water, is residing and dwelling and inhabiting our body. So that's the first concept I want us to see tonight. Very important concept. And it's also interesting because God's people always lived, and to this day, even the Middle East there, Israel, is a very arid place, a very dry place, much like Phoenix is. And water is very precious to those people. It is life to them. So God here is again reminding them also about how precious this water is, how, how much it needs to be relied upon, because without it, there is no physical life. And God is using this throughout His Word to show us, and without this, there is no spiritual life. 
There is no vitality. There is no invigoration. There's no energy. You see, God, even through this fountain, wants to hydrate us spiritually, just as we need to stay hydrated physically in the desert so that, so that we can be active and energized in all of that. And that's part of the concept of this living water and this life-giving fountain. In fact, if you study this back in Zechariah, I believe that this fountain is literally a waterfall that gushes forth and will gush forth permanently as we've seen in the book of Revelation and then again in Zechariah 14.8. So that's the first thing we see about God. By the way, the other thing I want to point out is that let's not forget as we go through the book of Zechariah that Zechariah's name means God remembers. And when you dwell on that, let's remember what that means. It means that God remembers His promises and His covenant to His people. It means God remembers His people because He told us earlier on in the book of Zechariah that we are the apple of His eye and He's always got His eye on us. But here's the amazing thing. God remembers His promises and His covenant and His word towards us, and He always remembers us, but He chooses to forget our sin. He chooses to not dwell on our sin and our failure. He chooses to cast our sin into the depths of the sea. He chooses to cast our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. It's not that God just like us, cannot physically forget something. Like God can't become absent-minded or forgetful. But God says to us, I choose to think about and dwell on the things that I, I want to and I choose to. And for me as God, I don't choose to dwell on your failures. <laughs> I don't choose to dwell on your sin. I, I choose to, to dwell on what I have promised you and, and to look out for you and, and all of that and to take care of you and provide for you. And, but I, I don't choose that. So remember, when you are ever reading the book of Zechariah, that this also, his very name, the name of the prophet, speaks to us again about our God. That he is a God that remembers, you know, certain things, but also chooses to forget, if you will, other things. And he's also the fountain of living water. Then... If you'll go with me to verse 2. Now God is saying, I am cleansing my people. I have forgiven them of their idolatry. And now, in the future, I'm literally going to wipe out all of the idols and all the traces of idolatry in the land. I'm going to get rid of it all. Because it's one thing to, in a sense, cleanse. It's another thing to keep all the things that keep, you know, causing defilement and impurity around. And God says, I'm going to get rid of it all one day. So notice what God says. And also on that day, says the Lord who rules over all, I will remove, I will literally cut off or cut down the names of the idols from the land. God says, I'm, I'm not just going to remove the idols themselves. I'm going to remove the names attached to them. Think about that. They come up with names for the idols. And never again will they be remembered. Moreover, I'm also going to remove the prophets, the false prophets, and the unclean spirit from the land. God is saying there's always an unclean, evil spirit behind, you know, false prophecy and false prophets who do not teach my people 
the truth. Then if anyone prophesies in spite of this, in spite of what I'm doing, they clearly know that I don't like this. Notice what he says. That their father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you cannot live for you lie in the name of the Lord. Then his father and mother to whom he was born will run him through with the sword when he prophesies. It's going to be a different day when Jesus rules. Can I just tell you? And God is saying, there's going to be such a reverence and respect for me that even parents, when they see their own child literally defying a clear command of Scripture, will say, we can't have you here. You are such a bad influence because you are continuing to prophesy falsely in spite of the clear warnings and desires and will of God. We cannot let you exist. Then he goes on to say, Therefore, on that day, verse 4, each prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and will no longer wear the hairy garment of a prophet to deceive the people. But they will try. Instead, he will say, I'm not a prophet. Indeed, I'm, I'm a farmer. For a man has made me his indentured servant since my youth. And then someone will ask him, well, what are these wounds on your chest? You say, well, what's that mean? You see, false prophets would literally cut themselves. It was the way they could appease their, their idols and these false gods and really these demonic spirits. They would literally cut themselves and they're trying to hide it. That, that this is what they're still doing in their life, even though, again, God has clearly said, this cannot exist anymore in the land. And he will answer, some that I received in the house of my friends. You see, it is so entrenched in the land that in a sense, it's like God has to go in and perform this radical surgery and literally remove all of this, all of this false stuff out of the land like a, like a huge cancerous tumor that's got to be removed and got to be torn out. And God says, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it because I, I can't cleanse my people and then allow the sources of all of their idolatry and defilement and sin to continue to exist. No, this is going to be a different place. Now, I want to go back up, though, to the beginning in verse 2. Because, again, this is a phrase that is used throughout Zechariah. And it's one that I want to camp on for just a minute tonight. And that is that the Lord refers to himself as the Lord who rules over all or the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, it is Jehovah Sabaoth. It is a very important characterization or title for our Lord. He calls himself Jehovah Sabaoth. And the reason that is important is when you begin to think, my God is the God who rules over all all. There is nothing higher, nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing beyond. He's it. And the reason I want us to camp there for a moment is for this reason, because even as followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes we find ourselves at the end of ourselves. And it's good when we are at the end of ourselves to remember there is no end to our God. He is infinite. He is the Lord who rules over all. And when we get to the end of ourselves, God's still there. And He's still more than enough for us. Or, maybe it's not us who get to the end of ourselves, but 
there's a situation or a circumstance in our life or someone else's life, and we say, God, this is, this, is, this is too hard, this is too big, this is too great, this is too painful to deal with. We must remember that He is the Lord who rules over all. And when we come to our extreme, there is no extreme with God. There, there is no situation where God throws up His hands and is at a loss as to how to deal with it or what to do. That there is never a time where God says, this is too much for me. And that's why it's so important for us to remember these these descriptions of God and to understand our God because it's actually key to us living life. And not forgetting that He is the God who remembers... Not forgetting that He is the very fountain of living water and the source of life for us and everything else for us. That my God shall supply all our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But He is also Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That all the resources of the universe are at His disposal. And that when you and I get to the end of ourselves or there comes a situation into our life that's way too big for us, let's be reminded that it's never too big for God. Because He is the Lord that rules over everything. There is nothing in the universe. Which is why one day the Bible says that Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul goes into the fact that it is those above the earth, those on the earth, those below the earth. In other words, the entire universe will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus. No one higher, no one greater, no one bigger than God. Maybe right now, you're going through a situation in your life that's just beyond you. We all do. Because it's easy. We're, we're just human. There's a lot of situations in our life that go beyond us real quick. And God wants His people especially to know, but it's not beyond me. And I want to help you. I want to support you. I want to be your source and your resource and your support and your help. The Lord who rules over all, remember, is Jehovah Sabaoth. Then verse 7. How is God going to bring this wonderful cleansing and forgiveness of sin about? Well, He's going to strike His shepherd. Notice the prophecy here in Zechariah 13.7, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Awake sword against my shepherd. Now He's not talking about the false shepherds. He's talking about His shepherd. And he calls him the man who is my associate. Very interesting word in the Hebrew. It means one who is my close companion, my confidant. I'm bound to this person. I'm in such close connection. I am near to them. We are near to each other. And God is basically describing himself as the relationship that he has with his son, Jesus Christ here. And yet, notice he is saying, awake, sword. He's saying, in order to bring all this about, my associate, my companion, the one nearest to me, the shepherd has to be pierced through, has to be run through. 
And then he goes on to say, strike the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. Now to show you that Jesus Christ himself took these words from Zechariah and applied them to himself, turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, where Jesus quotes these very verses. Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, This night you will all fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus there is quoting the very verses that we saw tonight. Jesus then, first of all, let's look at it this way. First of all, Jesus here then is pictured as the lamb. Not just the shepherd, we'll get to that in a minute, but the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one that would be pierced. The one that would be broken. The one that would be crucified. The one that would take sin on Himself and suffer and die. Isaiah 53. The one who was acquainted with our griefs. Who bore our sorrows. Who took our sins upon Himself. Isaiah 53. But He is our shepherd too. He's the one that wants to lead us, providing and protecting and guiding. And again, several weeks ago, we read Psalm 23. So He's both shepherd and the lamb that lays down His life for His sheep here. But notice, if you go back to Zechariah then, how Jesus applies this. Zechariah's prophecy was, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And it is the idea that when the true shepherd of God, when the leader that God puts in place is rejected by God's people, guess what happens to them? They scatter. They don't stay together in unity like God's desire. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be struck. I'm going to be pierced through. I'm going to be, you know have a sword go through me, you all are going to fall away. You're not going to be there. And then, that group of disciples is actually representative of the entire nation of Israel who rejected Him. Because what happened to the nation of Israel? What happened to the people of God, the Jews? They what? They scattered all over the world. They went everywhere for a millennia or more. Until God reestablished the state of Israel in 1947, and now God is drawing the Jews back to Israel once again. And they are coming back, if you keep up with this, they are coming back in droves. They are coming back in record numbers, which again to me is a sign of living in the last days. Because for over a thousand years, they were scattered to all the nations of the world. And why? Because they rejected their Messiah. That was the consequence. But God now is bringing them back because He's going to meet with them again as Zechariah has prophesied. And He's going to turn His attention back to them and He's going to save them. So notice, He goes on to say in verse 8 of Zechariah 13, It will happen in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of the people in it will be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. 
Zechariah here is talking about the tribulation period, that seven-year period. And basically God is saying that even through that, two-thirds of the Jews will die. But there will be a remnant, a faithful remnant. In fact, that faithful remnant is who he's talking about in verse 7 when he says, I will turn my hand against the insignificant ones, that small number, that remnant that is still left as, as Jews just die in droves during the tribulation period. Why is God allowing this? Why is God doing this? Again, because God is a refiner. God is a purifier. Notice what God says through the prophet in verse uh, 9. Then I will bring the remaining third into, or literally through, the fire. Affliction as a purifier. Notice that the fire is not the end. It is part of the journey. Then God says, why am I doing that? Because I'm going to refine them like silver is refined. I'm going to purge away all the impurities. I'm going to burn them with fire, if you will. Figuratively. And I will test them like gold is tested to determine or to prove the genuineness of something. Let me stop there. All through the Bible, you can see this, where God, again, pictures Himself as the refiner, the purifier. Jesus would even use the term in John 15, the one that prunes, (laughs) the one that cuts back in order for it to be more fruitful in the vine figure in John 15. Here, he's pictured as the refiner. And when God refines us, again, it's always for our good. It's always to make us more pure, more undiluted, less distracted, if you will, in our lives. It's always to get our focus and our priorities. That's why God refines us. And when God tests us, It's never to discourage or to destroy us. It is always to prove the genuineness of what is there and to show us and others the genuineness of what is there. You see, the same word, very interestingly in the Bible, is used for God and for Satan when they test human beings. Because the Bible says Satan tests us. The Bible says God tests us. The concept is the same. But depending on who's doing the testing, it comes from two completely different motivations or intentions. God's intention when He tests His people is always to show what's there or to show what's not there. For Satan, it's always to try to destroy, to to discourage, to cause us to go into to a funk, if you will, and to cause despair and and to, to bring us down. You see the difference, if you will, by reading and studying the book of Job and seeing God's ultimate purpose for why He allowed Job to be tested. Maybe you feel like you're going through the fire right now. Then guess what? As a Christian, we will at times go through the fire because God is a refiner. And He will allow His children even to go through the fire. 
Think of Daniel's three friends that went into the fire, but not to destroy them, but to show their faith. You see, to show what was there already. And so when God refines or tests us, here's what you and I have to come back to. Again, that understanding that that's who our God is. And if He's doing it, then He's trying to to purify or purge something out of our life. To make us less deluded, if you will, spiritually. To make us stronger. And if He's testing us, it's to show what's really there. You see? That's a good thing. That's why they test metal. That's why they put gold in the fire to see, is this genuine or is this fake? And that's how you and I know the genuineness or the strength of our faith. And that's why even Peter picks up on this idea, doesn't he? In 1 Peter 1, when Peter says, he says, rejoice at the trial of your faith. The testing of your faith. Because he says when our faith is tested, it shows what's there. How strong is our faith? Do we go through something and just, oh. Or do we realize that God is the God that if he takes us into the fire, he will bring us through the fire just like he did Daniel's friends. And he will be with us in the fire. Because he never allows the fire to come into our life again to destroy us or to discourage us, but actually to make us stronger and to show us and to show others what's really there. And remember something. Sometimes it has nothing to do with us. Because remember, God allowed Daniel's friends to go into that fire to show the faith that they had so that it would impact Nebuchadnezzar. So that it would reach to Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember, when Nebuchadnezzar sees that fourth person walking around with them in the fire, and he says, this person is like a god. And, and then he, he, he takes them out of the fire. And he says to them, your god must really be god. It was a testimony. It was a witness to them. So sometimes, think about it, maybe God is allowing you and I to go through the fire sometimes so that others around us can see the genuineness of our faith. Because if everything always went well for us, then those that were skeptical and those that weren't believers would say, just like, uh, just like they did Satan, Job, well, J- God, the only reason Job is having it so good and doing so well is because everything's going his way. Let me touch him and I guarantee you things will change. And if we're as true as Daniel's friends or even Job, though we might struggle through it, but get through it, other people will see, man, the reality of God and our faith in our life in ways that we could never tell them because there's something about showing them through the fire of life that they see it much more clearly than they ever would by us just telling them. Yeah, I'm I'm a strong believer. I'm strong in my faith. Maybe we even try to convince ourselves of that. But the fire, when it comes, it's, it's going to show up what's really there, what's really not there. But then I love this. God says, even in the time of the fire, 
they will call on my name and I will answer them. God says, you can always call on me when you're in the fire. And I'll answer you. It's God's promise to his people. And doesn't that remind you of Jeremiah 33.3? Where God said through the prophet Jeremiah to his people, Call unto me and pray, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. By the way, if you've ever studied that in the context, do you know when, when that encouragement to God's people was given? It was given to them when they were under siege. When they were getting ready to basically be taken away into exile. It was a time when their walls and all that was protecting them was going to be torn down by the enemy. The enemy was going to rush in and take them into exile. And God says, you're getting ready to go in the fire, but you call on me in prayer and I'll answer you. And I'm going to show you great and mighty things that you don't know. Very interesting word, the word mighty there. It literally means mysterious or hidden or um, something that, that you and I could not know unless God revealed it. And so notice what God is saying to his people in that promise in Jeremiah 33.3. He's saying, if you will pray to me, I will, I will show you things that you could never know unless I told you. And I will tell you if you call out to me in prayer. I will give you insight that you could never have. It's inaccessible. And isn't that interesting? At the same time that the walls were being breached in Jerusalem and that the inaccessible was being accessed uh, by, by the enemy of God's people, that God was saying, but there's greater things that, that are inaccessible to you that I will share with you if you call on me in prayer. And do it in the fire. Do it in the fire. And of course, we know Daniel was a great example of that while he was in exile in Babylon. And then I love this. Why does God do all this? Why is he the God who remembers? Why is he the fountain of life-giving water? Why is he Jehovah Sabaoth? Why is he the shepherd? Why is he the sheep? Why is he the refiner? Because he wants to get to a place where he has a personal, intimate relationship with his people. And notice what he says. They will call on my name and I will answer and I will say, these are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. You see, this speaks to the restoration of the nation of Israel as the people of God once again. Why is God doing all this? Why does God make the sacrifices that he does? Why does God take us through the things that he does? Because God wants us, each and every one of us, to be as close to him as we possibly can. That's why God wants us to be close to him. And so God wants to remove everything in our life that prevents us from snuggling up to God. And God says, I'm willing to do it. I'll, I'll go to whatever degree. I'll even give up my very life. <laughs> because, if, because God can't stand to be separated from those He's created. Think about it. That's how bad God wants to commune and fellowship and spend time with us. That He would go to any lengths to do it. And to remove whatever's preventing it. And yet, many times, and I'll just speak of myself, do I, do I burn and desire to be with God like He wants to be with me? 
And do I not take for granted all that God has done in my life and all that God wants to do in my life and all that God will do in my life like he did for his people, the Jews throughout history and will do for them to bring us closer? That's our God. That's who he is. And that's the message of Zechariah 13. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God that is not distant, a God that doesn't want to hold us at arm's length, but a God that wants to bring us ever closer to you. A God that wants us to snuggle up. A God that wants us to to feel his breath on the back of our neck. The God that wants us to feel his hand on our shoulder. The God that wants to feel us to feel him putting his arm around us and pulling us close. A God that wants us to understand his embrace. A God that wants us to see his eyes looking lovingly into ours. A God that wants us to observe his lips moving with loving, caring thoughts and words towards us. A God that wants us to see Him singing and praising over us and celebrating us. That's our God. And so God, I pray tonight that it would help us in our life every day to just see You more clearly. And Zechariah 13 certainly gives us that opportunity. God, maybe we need to go back into that and just meditate on some of these things throughout this next week and the weeks to come and remind ourselves constantly about who you are and how much you love us and how close you want to be to us. God, I also pray that tomorrow you would be with our Irwin's family as I know you've been throughout this week since he's passed. And I pray, Lord, that the service tomorrow would be a source of comfort to Margaret and to Alan Margaret's children and grandchildren and extended family. And God, I just ask that you would use me in some small way to bring your word in that place tomorrow. God, thank you for Al, for his life, for his faithfulness here at the Oasis, and for me personally, for his friendship that meant so much to me. I just look forward to seeing him again one day in glory. God, take us home. Refresh us with your spirit. Wake us up tomorrow ready to once again be your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.